guests. We do have a visitor packet for you that explains a little bit about the uh, spiritual family here at Westside Church of Christ. If you would raise your hand, we have some young men who will be happy to hand you one of these packets. Just raise your hand real high and they'll give one of those to you. I want you to know as a visitor and want all of our members to know that this is the book that we go by. This book, Inspired Word of God, tells us everything we need to know in terms of what we believe and what we do. You will notice in our worship this morning that what we do in worship is according to the pattern in the New Testament given to us by Jesus and his apostles. You will notice that the rest of the books of the New Testament teach us how to live as Christians. We offer Bible classes here at the Westside Congregation. We hope that you avail yourself of that this morning. But we encourage you to be a part of our Bible classes where we study and learn how to live in a way that will bring glory and honor to Jesus Christ. One of the things that uh, we have put out for your benefit is a series on the difference between the old covenants and the new covenants and how worship relates to those covenants. We ran out of them three times in a row, but we have more on the tables in the back with the Lord's Supper uh, in the, uh, the lobby there. If you did not get a copy, feel free to take uh, a complimentary copy today. We want you to uh, take advantage of this time to turn off your cell phone or to turn it on silence so that it does not uh, interrupt our worship together. We do have a training room available for anyone who needs just to my left outside in the lobby. We also have an attended nursery. If you go out these doors down the, uh, through the double doors down the hallway, someone will meet you in the attended nursery if you have need of that as well. This morning, uh, we have, well, before I make that announcement, let me mention that we had a wonderful experience in the uh, early worship as J.W. Harmon came forward to put on Jesus in baptism. So Furman baptized him into Christ, and uh, Brian and Nikki were down here, and Nikki was crying as, uh, as every mother would, and it was a wonderful experience. So either today or this evening, please uh, welcome J.W. into our spiritual family. This morning, our singing is being led by Wes Ritchie. Our communion comments are going to be led by Dwayne England, and our opening prayer is going to be led now by Brother Don Boyd. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we approach your throne this morning humbly recognizing and knowing, Father, that you are the creator of the universe. And Father, that you have loved mankind and gave him a savior. And we are thankful for that. And Father, this morning we come to you with thankful hearts, asking you to bless those who are suffering. Father, those who have lost family members, and this morning we remember Mary Moore's family, and we know that these are very difficult times. We pray for them and ask you to bless them. 
Father, for those who are suffering from illness, from accident, and from other things, we pray your blessings upon them. And Father, we ask that you will bless our brothers and sisters, your children from around the world who are calling upon you today. We pray for them and we pray for those who are serving them. Father, we pray for this congregation. We ask you to bless our elders as they make the decisions. Be with our ministers. Be with all who are serving. And Father, we ask you to be with us in this time that our worship will be acceptable to you. We thank you, Father, especially for our Savior, for his sacrifice. And it's in his name that we do pray. Amen. I am thine, O Lord, I have heard thy
Before our lesson this morning, I'd invite you to stand as we sing, He Gave Me a Song. We'll have a scripture reading and then Brother Eric's lesson.
If you have your Bibles, please be turning them to Genesis chapter 3. I'll be reading verses 1 through 6. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field which the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Indeed has God said, You shall not eat from, the, from any tree of the garden. The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You will surely not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a light, delight to the eye, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate it. And she also gave it to her husband with her, and he ate it. Good morning. It is a delight to have you here. It always is. We're thankful to the God of heaven for yet another opportunity to be in his presence and in one another's presence to give him glory, to worship him, and to study more about his word. If you have your Bibles and you're in Genesis chapter 3, that will be great. We're going to be here this morning, and uh, we're probably going to be dealing with our subject for multiple weeks, so we'll talk about questions this morning and at the very least, for the next couple of weeks, we'll answer and talk about more questions. Our title this morning is Questions from God We All Need to Answer. Questions from God We All Need to Answer. Questions are actually a great tool in our communication with one another. We are trying, typically, when we're asking questions, we're seeking more information. We're trying to get some clarity, maybe clear up some matters. Possible we didn't hear everything, and we need more information. And so questions are great to that end. Sometimes questions are used to provoke thought or to measure interest or even to teach. It's the way Jesus often used questions. He was questioned, and sometimes he would respond with a question himself. He was asked on one occasion, by what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? Well, that's a question, a legitimate question, even from impure hearts. Jesus followed that with another question, the baptism of John. Whence was it, from heaven or of men? Our Lord is asking them, if you're interested in these spiritual matters, answer this question, and we'll go forward. In fact, he says as much. If you answer my question, then I'll answer yours, and I'll tell you by what authority. And it turns out they didn't have much interest in what the Lord was asking. The first question in Scripture is, I think, recorded here in Genesis chapter 3 and verse number 1. It's actually asked by the devil. Yea, had God said, ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. On this occasion, a question is used to create doubt or distrust, and he's pretty successful in conjuring that up in Eve. God himself is often questioned, and I suppose on some level that says a great deal about him, that he in his infinite nature and state is willing to allow himself to be questioned and even entertained and answer the questions of men. Abraham asked of God, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? 
God will listen and answer questions sometimes even when there's accusation in the question. I don't know if anyone has ever done that to you. If you've ever been asked a question that you weren't sure it was a question or an accusation, you did it, didn't you? Is that a question or a statement of fact? I mean, I'm not sure. You want me to answer that? Uh, well, that's the way people sometimes approach God. The psalmist in Psalm 10 and verse number 1 said, Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? What a thing to say to the God of heaven, and yet that is the question. God is the only one who can ask a question and not actually need to learn new information simply because he knows everything already. His questions then are for the benefit of his children or for those he is asking. He's trying to help them. There are three questions here in Genesis chapter 3 that we want to note this morning from the God of heaven. They all in one way or another deal with and address the subject of sin. There is the commission of sin, there is the consequence of sin, and there is the cost of sin. These questions center around those three things. The location is the garden. That's Genesis chapter 3. As we read, that's where Adam and Eve is. God has made them. He's given them everything. In fact, he says as much back in Genesis chapter 1. I've given you everything. And he had. He even gave them each other. And what a joy it must have been when they saw each other for the very first time. The circumstances center around the commands that God has given. If you look at Genesis 2, verses 15 to 17, God has created the man. He's put him into the garden, and God commanded him, verse 16, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the midst of the garden thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that you eat thereof you will surely die." There is within those statements by God both allowances. You talk about good parenting. God is the greatest parent that's ever existed. Here he gives them allowances. I've given you everything and you can have everything. There is one prohibition. You can't have that. It's amazing that you could have everything and then want the only one thing that you're told you can't have. That's the way it is with Adam and Eve, and it seems to be the way it is with man even to the day. The situation is, well, they did sin. They violated what God said, violated and broke his law. That's Genesis 3 and verse number 6. As we had read, the woman saw the tree that it was good for food, a tree to be desired to make one wise. She took of the fruit thereof. She did eat, gave also to her husband, and he did eat. Just for the record, it's not as if God did something special to this tree. It's not as if this one was somehow so significantly different that she suddenly gazed upon it, and as it turned out, it's good for food. Look back in chapter 2. Look at verse number 9. The Bible says, out of the ground, the Lord God caused to grow every tree. That's what? Pleasing to the eyes, good for food. The tree of life also was in the midst of the garden, and the rest of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's not as if Eve saw this tree and suddenly that one's good for food. No, they were all pleasant to the eyes. They were all good for food. What's changed about this is that she now desires that which is forbidden. That's the problem. There is this statement within verse 6, a tree to be desired to make one wise. Now, that's never part of the tree. That was never it. That's what Satan told her. 
you will be like God. You'll be wise. Well, now when she looks at it, she looks at it with that in mind. And so she takes it to be wise, to be like God. She eats it and she gives it to her husband and he eats. Well, several things have happened now as a result of that sin. Adam and Eve has changed. Now, when I say that, I said it this morning, I didn't clarify, so let me clarify now. When I say they change, I don't mean that their nature changed because it didn't. We don't have a fallen nature. We don't have a depraved nature. There is absolutely no difference between Adam and Eve's nature in the garden and man's nature outside of the garden. It's the same nature. When I say they've changed, I'm simply talking about what's in verse 7. The Bible says the eyes of both of them were opened. That's a change. They knew that they were naked. That's a change. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings or aprons. That's a change. What's happened to them? They are now aware. Their eyes are opened. Not their physical eyes. They could always see. It's how they got to the tree. In fact, verse 6 says when the woman saw the tree, it's not a matter of physical sight. She saw it, which is how she got to it and took the fruit thereof. Well, now, though, there is an awareness that they didn't previously have. Their eyes are open. They have a new knowledge. They knew that they were naked. Well, again, they've always known they were naked. It's how they came here, and they were very much aware of that. Look back at chapter 2 and verse 25, and note that the Bible says, and the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. What is different now, though, is they are and will be ashamed of this knowledge, of this nakedness. In fact, you can see that by their solution. They've never worn fig leaves. They've never worn loincloths. It's never been an issue to cover themselves. It is now. And so they made themselves coverings. They've changed. In this circumstance, God approaches them, verse number 8. They heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the Bible says they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees. I don't know that I could prove it, and so I wouldn't say it's a matter of absolute. I'm guessing, if you'll allow, that probably wasn't the first time they heard God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. I would trust they've been in communion and fellowship with the God of heaven. But for whatever reason on this occasion, this sin, they hide themselves. Likely they'd never done that before. They never had cause to flee the presence of God. Never had cause to run away from him. They are now doing just that. Why? Because of this change. They now feel guilt and they now feel shame. Things they likely never felt before. And it's caused them to hide themselves. All of this brings about the first question. It's in verse number 9. The Bible says, God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Now, if God is asking questions, it's not for his benefit, so it's for Adam's benefit. Where are you? Well, Adam hasn't changed location. He's in the garden. But Adam has moved. In fact, he has moved in his knowledge. He has moved in his experience. He has moved in his innocence, and that's the nature of sin. Sin moves us. Sin changes us. There are two ways to learn things, and now Adam and Eve have used both of those ways. 
The first way is knowledge. You just sit and learn. Someone teaches or instructions. They provide information. Things you didn't previously know, you now learn them. Well, that's one way to acquire knowledge and to learn. Another way is experience by going out and doing, practically, taking that knowledge and applying it. One man likened it to skydiving. That is, when you go to skydive, they're actually going to teach you how on the ground. You're going to sit in a classroom or receive some level of instruction. They're going to roll the parachute. Someone else will do that, not you. And then they will teach you, here's what you're going to do. Here's what you're going to experience. Here's how you're going to go up in the plane. And these are the things that are going to happen. You're going to know how to do it before you go up. You'll probably feel pretty good about it because when they say get on the plane, you'll get on the plane. Now, why would you do that? Well, I know what's going to happen next. I know. But once you go up to 10,000 to 14,000 feet, and once you watch a few of your friends slide over to the door as you sit there, and once they disappear into the sky, <laughs> and then they say to you, it's your turn. Once you saunter over to the edge of the door and look out and hear, <sighs> When you jump, you're going to know something about skydiving very different than what you knew on the ground. And when you get down safely, we hope, don't read the statistics before you go up, but when you get down safely and someone asks you, how was skydiving? You're going to have a whole entire different perspective and knowledge of having done it. That is the way it is with sin. Adam and Eve knew information prior to this event, but they now have experienced it. And that experience once had, you can't go back to not having it. You can't unring a bell, as they say. And once the die is cast, you can't get it back. Well, that's the way it is with sin. What does that mean to you and I? Well, when we sin, we break God's commands. When we sin, we become aware, knowledgeable of sin. We experience shame and guilt. As a result of that, very often, we take the same steps that they took. We try our own solutions to cover it, to hide it. We try to ease our minds. Some people are so overwhelmed with it, they try to escape it. The problem is you take you everywhere you go. That pain of conscience you feel. People start trying to drown it and quiet it. And so some turn to drugs and alcohol, actually further harming themselves. Others not knowing that there is a solution, they just give themselves over to it. And they say things like, I'm always this way. I'm going to be this way. This is just who I am. There's nothing I can do about it. Still, others try to avoid God's presence. Sometimes, you're God's presence. You come in and they go out. You come around, they don't want to be there. You start talking and they say things like, don't, I don't want to hear it anymore. They try to avoid it. But God, like he does here, comes to us and calls to us. He comes in the person of Jesus Christ ultimately 
Matthew chapter 1 and verse 23, his name will be Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. He calls to us, like here, but through the gospel. Paul says, whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's asking us, where are you? In fact, we might ask ourselves, where are you as it relates to sin? Are you in sin? Well, if you are, chances are good you're trying to hide it. Chances are good you don't want other people to know. What you should know is God knows. And God doesn't want you to hide from him. God has come to you, and now he wants you to come to him. That's what Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 30. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Why are you laboring and heavy laden, carrying around the guilt and the shame of sin? I'm sure you have noticed the movement and how prevalent it is. Don't shame anybody. What people fail to understand is the shame is felt by the person. Nobody has to give it to them. Nobody from the outside has to do any shaming. Your own heart and your own mind is what's causing the shame by design. The guilt is there by design. It's not thrust upon you by an oppressive society. It is the mechanism that God has put into your heart to steer you back to him. The pain is to be of such a nature that you want out. And so we come to him for relief. And that's exactly what Jesus says. Come to me and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you for I am meek and lowly in heart and ye shall find rest, listen to it, for your soul. That's what's hurting. The soul is hurting. The heart is hurting. The mind is hurting. Adam and Eve is hiding from the presence of God. You would think that if God came around, you would rush into his arms, so to speak. You couldn't wait to be warmed by his light. All you would want to do is to be near the God of heaven. He's coming to you. You would want to go to him, but no sin will have you hiding from the presence of God, hoping to escape and to get away. A lot of the pain that people are experiencing, they want relief from the sadness, the misery. It's due to this very thing, sin and the guilt and the shame that accompany it. There is a transition in verse number 10. As God approaches Adam and Eve, he asks this first question. Verse 10, Adam responds. He says, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid myself. Three things there in verse number 10 stand out with regards to Adam's answers, and each one of them will lead naturally into God's next two questions. The first thing Adam says is, I heard the sound of you in the garden. That shouldn't be an unpleasant thing. God is coming. That shouldn't be a problem, but it is for Adam. Secondly, Adam says, I was afraid. I do not think on any level it's a stretch to say that's probably something Adam never experienced. He never had reason to be afraid. He never had cause to have this fear. Nothing was going to harm Adam and Eve. They ate herbs in the green vegetation and so did all the other animals. There was nothing there that was going to harm him. There was no cause of fear, but he's afraid now. But so that we're not confused, Adam explains why he was afraid. He says, because I was naked. Well, that too is not supposed to be a problem. 
the man and his wife knew that they were naked and they were not ashamed. Being naked is not supposed to be a problem for Adam and Eve. And then he says, so I hid myself. It's what Adam says that leads God to the next question. And God's questions then center around two things, the authority of God and the accountability of man. The next question is recorded there. The next two questions in verses 11, God said to him, who told you that you were naked? And have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Sometimes when you're answering questions in your mind, you're searching ahead, trying to find out all of the possibilities of what your answer might mean. And when you're a young person, you don't realize what a disadvantage you are at with your parents. And so they ask questions and you, you try to get answers out there that's going to stop them and cut them off. And oftentimes what you do is give up more information. <laughs> Your parents might ask you a question. You say, I heard you coming down the hall. Well, why did you hear me? You were supposed to be asleep. You ever had somebody say, I saw you not praying. <laughs> Wait. <laughs> so that would mean that you also weren't praying because you were watching me not pray, so you were not. Well, sometimes you give up more information. Adam has given up a lot of information, and God's question is, who told you you were naked? This comes as a result of the authority of God, and what humanity must understand is God is the authority. He has a right to ask the questions. He makes the rules. You and I will answer him. That authority can be seen in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. When you open up the Bible, it begins with God. In the beginning, God. God is the creator of heaven and earth. God is the sovereign ruler. God is the one in control. God made the world, and God made you. And as a result of that, God has the right to rule and to govern and to ask the questions and to demand answers. God has given them everything, and God will ultimately ask us a series of questions. The Bible will say of God, he's the creator and we're the creature. He's the potter and we're the clay. He's the owner of all things. It all belongs to God. The cattle on a thousand hills, the psalmist says, it's all his. And at best, we're stewards of his possessions, Psalm 8, 3 to 6. The questions then are connected. Why do you know that which you are not supposed to know? You know it now based on experience, and that experience has come as a result of disobedience. Who told you that you were naked? That answer and that question is obviously rhetorical, but it bleeds into the next question, which is, did you eat of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? That's the only way you could have known that. It's not supposed to be a problem, and yet it is. There is within this question a, 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 a very important note for those who lead. As you read Genesis chapter 3, and as the Bible talks about it, it's very clear that Eve ate of the tree first. In fact, that's what verse 6 says. But verse 9, the Bible teaches us very plainly that God approached Adam first. And when Scripture is talking about the first sin, it attributes it to Adam. Romans chapter 5 and verse number 12. For by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin. Adam did that. 
Well, what's the point to leaders? The message simply is this. Leaders are accountable for those that they lead. There is an accountability because Adam is the head of his wife. The idea of headship is rooted in creation. And when God makes Adam and then Eve, God makes it that way. In Genesis chapter 2 and verse number 18, the Bible says the Lord God saw the man that he was alone, and God said it's not good for the man to be alone. Someone has noted that it's the only time with reference to creation that the phrase not good is used. I think that's right. Because every other time God made something, he said it was good, it was good, it was good. And on the last day, when all was made, he said it was very good. But there was a point on day six when Adam was alone. It's important to note that Adam was not lonely. It's not what the text says. God doesn't say it's not good that the man to be lonely. Lonely would imply Adam had someone to miss. There is no one there. No, Adam is not lonely. He is alone. And what God says is it's not good that the man should be alone. And so what God will do is solve that problem. Please understand, when we're talking about headship and leadership, it doesn't matter the vein in which we're talking about it. We're talking about that which God did. And so when people have a problem with this idea, a scriptural, biblical teaching of, of leadership in the home, in the church, male leadership, God did that. And if a person has a problem with that, they have to take that up with God. Three things are said here with reference to the creation of the woman. Every reference to her, in fact, is a reference that connects her to him. Notice verse number 18. God says, it's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. She is going to be suitable, yes, equal in every respect before God. Absolutely. But she's going to be, according to Scripture, for him. Slide down to verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. He slept, and then he took one of his ribs, closed up the flesh of at that place. Where did Eve come from? She came from him. That's what verse 22 says. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man. She was made for him. She was made from him. And verse 22 ends by saying, she was brought to him. These are not my words. They're in your Bible too. For him, from him, to him. That's just what the Bible says. Paul would say the same thing in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 to 14, with reference to the roles of men and women. Especially, he says, with regards to the church, he talks about that. This is how you ought to behave in the church, the house of God, 1 Timothy 3, 14 to 16. He says, for Adam was first formed. Why can't a woman exercise dominion over her husband? Why can't she do that? Because Adam was first formed, then Eve. He gives a second reason, the woman being deceived within the transgression, not the man. Well, that is what is being done or said here. The question ultimately is rhetorical. Did you eat of the tree? Or who told you you were naked and have you eaten of the tree? The answer is obviously yes, I did. Adam is accountable. He should have protected Eve. He should have done, uh, led Eve. He did not. Now then, this question is intended by God to produce awareness to Adam. 
God knows what he did. I know what you did. I'm aware of it. I want you to be aware of it. Secondly, there should be then from Adam acknowledgement. You know what you did. Did you eat of the tree? You know you did. Did you do it? Thirdly, admittance. If you will own it, admit it, then you can repent. There's a saying around the house, when you, when you mess up, fess up. Well, that's the idea here. If you did it, own it. It's the only way it can be fixed. The consequences or the question also leads to an acceptance of consequences. If you know that you violated the law, if you know that you have done wrong, if you know there were consequences to it, then you should be accepting of the punishment that it is due. God comes back to Adam in chapter 3, verses 17 to 19. It's interesting. He starts with Adam and he ends with Adam. Between those two, he talks to Eve and he talks to the serpent. But he starts with Adam and ends with Adam because of this accountability. And instead of Adam owning it and doing what God wanted, Adam didn't. Verse number 12, the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I did eat. Adam makes excuses. God, on some level, it's your fault. If you hadn't given her to me, we wouldn't be in this situation. Not a whole lot has changed. <laughs> I'm sure you've been there to the wedding where the man is down here waiting. And then the doors open, please rise. And everybody stands and we all turn back. And isn't she beautiful, made from love? Uh, there she is. And she starts walking in and then we hear this sound. <laughs> And then we stop looking at her and turn around. What are you doing? I'm just, I'm so happy. I can't believe she said, yes, she's mine. I'm just so, are you going to? We get through the ceremony. He's just crying and just wailing. And six months later, I can't stand this woman. I don't know what I'm going to do with her. I got to get up. Wait, you were the one. That's Adam. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she should be called woman because she was taken from the man. Did you eat of that tree, this woman? <laughs> that you gave to be with me. Adam blamed God. He blamed Eve, and ultimately he did say, yes, I did eat. But excuses and blaming and shifting are hardly proper acceptance. Let me ask you, where are you in regards to God's authority? Where are you as it relates to you giving an account to him? He will not accept excuses. He will not accept shifting of blame. He will not allow you to make somebody else responsible for your actions. In fact, he's been very clear about that from the beginning. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, is what 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, that everyone may give an account of the things which he has done in his body, whether they be good or bad. Or Colossians 3.25, he that doeth wrong shall receive for the wrong which he hath done, and there's no respect of persons. 
God has appointed a day, and he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he has appointed, Acts 17, 30 and 31. He's given proof or evidence. He raised him from the dead. Have you broken God's command? He has all authority. He has a right to ask you. He will hold you accountable and ultimately responsible for your own actions. God is aware of your sins. His question is so that you would be aware and ultimately want to get out. Brings us to the third and final question that's there in verse number 13. He does turn his attention to Eve. His question to her is the Bible says, the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent beguiled me and I did eat. The third question centers around two things as well, personal responsibility and the cost of sin. And while Adam is held accountable, and that will be true of all leaders, in fact, we'll talk about it some more next week. Lord's will, we'll talk about Genesis 4. There'll be more questions there, but we'll hone in on learning about God, some things we can learn about him, and learning about this idea of leadership and personal responsibility. It is not the case even though someone else is accountable, at least for a while, elders will be held accountable for their shepherding of God's flock. That's true. But every member will be told, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. It will not be the case that a member will stand before God and say, well, I only did this because the elders did that. No, sir, and no, ma'am. While they will have to give an account, you will for your own soul. Adam could be held accountable as the leader, but you'll notice God did turn to Eve and ask, what have you done? There is no escaping personal responsibility for our own actions, and she did do something. Those who follow cannot blame those who lead, and those who lead will not be able to project onto those who follow as if it was their fault in their leadership. The questions revolve around the cost of sin and the consequences of sin. When it comes to the subject of sin, it just seems like many people have taken a very, a, a very cavalier attitude toward it, a very light attitude toward it. People underrate sin. It's not that big a deal. There's an underappreciation for the damage that it causes. Sometimes one sin enters in a life and can destroy the whole thing. See David's life. The sword will never depart your house. David lived with the consequences and the cost of that action. One action, an extremely big cost. Consider what God says here next to appreciate the cost of what's involved. What have you done? The Lord God said to the servant, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and your seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. What's God talking about? The cost and consequence of sin. He says these two things. One, the Messiah is going to come. I don't know any gospel preacher, to my knowledge anyway, that doesn't believe Genesis 3.15 is the first reference to the Christ ultimately coming. The seed of woman. When he comes, what will he do? He's going to die for the sins of the world. He's going to deliver. He's going to defeat the devil and deliver God's people. 
Notice Hebrews chapter 2. That's exactly what the writer says there with reference to the devil, reference to the Christ and what he'll do. He has talked about the superiority of Christ. Christ is superior, specifically in chapter 1, to angels, as he continues that in the chapter 2. Angels are ministering spirits, Hebrews 1, 13 and 14. They are never referred to as the Son of God, unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my Son, this day have I begotten thee. He never refers to angels that way. On the other hand, when he refers to the Son in verse number 8 of chapter 1, he refers to him as God. Thy throne, O God. He is no angel. He's no created being. He is the express image of the Father, chapter 1 and verse number 3. And as he gets into chapter 2, he continues that discussion with an emphasis of why he came. And so he says in verse number 9, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, crowned with glory for the suffering of death, that he, that he might by, by death taste the grace of God, should taste death for every man. Jesus is going to come and take on flesh in order to die. And when he comes, he will be like his brethren. That's verse 10 down to verse number 13. He's going to be like one of us. In fact, later in verse number 17, he'll say, it behooved him to be made like us in all things. He's not going to take on him the seed of angels. He's not going to become an angel. He's not going to redeem them. He's going to become one of us in order to redeem us. And what will he do? Notice verse 14. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. Why? The end of the verse says that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. What is God going to do? What's the cost of sin? The blood of Jesus. The second member of the Godhead will take on flesh, John 1, 1 to 3 and verse number 14. And when he takes on that flesh, Hebrews chapter 8 through 10, a body will be prepared for him. Why? So he can die. His blood shed. Why? For the sins of the world. In order to accomplish what? A defeat of the devil and a deliverance of God's people. And when did that subject broke Genesis chapter 3? The very first sin. What is the high cost of sin? The death of Christ, the blood of Jesus. Sometimes people will read about the passion of the Christ and they unfortunately will disconnect it from sin. They will talk about how he suffered and they'll go into great detail. Oh, you, the, 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 the whips and the things that were braided and the, 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 the rocks and bone and how, and people will be very graphic about how his back was open. He was stretched out and how blood flowed. And they'll talk about his organs and how he was, and they'll go on and on. And people will feel terrible about that. Why is it happening? Why is he in the garden crying? Why is he on the cross asking, my God, my God, why? Do you, why? Because of Genesis 3. Because of sin. And people commit sin like it's chewing gum. Just no big deal. Jesus is in that garden because of this garden. And God is asking, what have you done? It almost sounds like the scene where a parent has rushed into a room and seen a child living and a child no longer living and asking, what have you done? And the child having no idea of the gravity. 
You know who knows what she did? God. And you know what he did? He kept marching to Calvary for you and for me. Where are you in relationship to Christ? Do you have an appreciation of what you have done? Sin is why souls will go to eternal damnation. It's not God. Somebody say, I can't serve a God who will send somebody to hell. Don't worry about that. God won't send nobody to hell. That's not the problem. Sin will. It's not circumstances. Well, I'm this way because I was born in this situation and this. It's not bad luck and bad breaks. It's not the devil. It's not the church and religion. Well, I just don't believe in organized religion. What do you believe in? Disorganized religion? <laughs> it's not the church. Oh, there's too many hypocrites down there. That's why I'm not coming. Hypocrites ain't sending you to hell. That's not going to be the problem. Sin is. But not just anybody's sin. Your sin. Living a life of sin and dying in that state is what's going to send people to hell. To prevent us from going there, God sent Jesus to the cross. God listened to his son cry and wail in the garden. Paul said in the book of Romans, he did not withhold his own son. You know, sometimes when I read that passage and think about the cross, and those of you who are parents, you've probably had an experience. I had many years ago with, with uh, 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 one of our daughters. She was, um, she was injured, and uh, she needed to go to the hospital. And we pulled up in front of the hospital frantic, as parents would do. And uh, I was driving, so I was trying to find a park. We were in a, a different state and city, and I was trying to find a park. It's like it's a one-way street. We can't really get in there. And, and so I, I had the great idea. Well, I just pull up to the door, and y'all jump out and go in. Vanessa, just take her. Go in there. And we pull up. I finally get in front of the door. And just as I'm about to get him out the car and go look for a park, she said, Dad, I want you to come. Okay. I take off the seat buckle and jump out the car and we'll, we get in there, and we wait, and then finally she's seen. We get in the back, and they start pushing on her and prodding on her and poking her, and eventually they start treating her, and the treatment hurt. And I'm holding her hand, and the nurse is uh, trying to tend to her, and she's pushing on her pretty hard, and she's doing some things, and the daughter starts crying. We go a little further in this process, and then she says, Dad, do something. I said, well, honey, it's going to be all right. It's going to be okay. It's, gonna, it's got to do this to make you feel better. Got, Dad, it hurts. Now, I'm saying that, but she's crying that. Dad, make her stop. And at some point, it went from her tears to my tears. She just cried and cried. Dad, do something. You know, when I think about that and whatever I felt, I try to think of what it must have been like for God to hear his son crying. Father, if it's possible, do something. Nevertheless, not my will. Your will be done. He did not withhold his own 
from me and you. And sometimes we go about living lives of sin with impunity and disregard for the cost. You can't defeat sin and self and Satan on your own. You can't cleanse yourself. But Jesus can. Where are you as it relates to God? Are you in sin? He's coming to you. He's calling to you. Did you break his commands? Have you sinned? Will you take responsibility for it? Will you admit it and own it? What have you done? Your sin and my sin made the cross of Christ a necessity. And God wants us to accept that, admit that, and change that. We offer an invitation so we can come to Jesus for cleansing. Don't hide from God. Don't pretend you didn't do it. Don't blame somebody else. Repent and come to Jesus and allow the burden at last to be lifted by our Lord. Did you believe this morning that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? John 8, 24, Jesus said, If you believe not that I am, you'll die in your sins, and where I am, you cannot come. Would you allow the message of hope and good news to move you to repent, to change your heart, to change your mind, to own it and accept it and say, I don't want it anymore. I'm tired of the burden and the weight. I want some relief. I want to change my mind. Jesus said, if you don't, you'll perish, Luke 13, 3. You confess the name of Jesus. I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I accept that he is who he says he is. I believe it with all my heart. And then will you be baptized, immersed in water for the forgiveness of sins? Let God, through Jesus, wash away your sins at last. Why do Christians have such hope and joy? That's why. They walk around with no burden. They walk around with no guilt and no shame. They live every day with joy of knowing I've been forgiven by God. And I'm on my way to heaven. And friends, if that's not how you're living this morning, we invite you to come to Jesus and be saved by him as we stand and as we sing.